Welcome back aboard, everyone. This is the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, and today I've got episode 29, Trade with Egypt, Conflict with Carthage. I really don't care for the title that much, to be honest, but I couldn't come up with a pithy way to summarize everything that's packed into the episode today, so I hope you'll forgive me for the title, and hopefully the content can make up for it. Last time we talked, I laid out the Greek move into and colonization of the Black Sea and the regions approaching that body of water. The natural resources there were quickly pumped back into the growing city-states closer to Greece herself, and as they continued to grow, Greece continued to expand. That continuing expansion is really going to be our focus today, and just like we did last time, Today, we will focus on two main regions where maritime-related expansion took place. I'll try to keep the foundation discussion to a minimum, though in many cases I do think it's important to lay out a foundation leading up to the maritime-specific stories or discussions, since that foundation or background information does give important context to everything else. My final prefatory point here involves the trireme, and the place that it has in today's discussion, but really in the coming many episodes as well. I laid out last time my desire to dedicate at least one episode to discussing the primary sources that we have for the early stages and the development of the trireme, in addition to the archaeology and reconstruction efforts that have gone on so far. Depending on how far we get today, that trireme episode, uh, probably it will be our next full episode, or maybe the one immediately following that. I think that this setup will work just fine, but my warning here stems from my desire to tell you that the trireme mentions may slip into today's episode at various points, but that I won't really elucidate on the ship itself too much, until next time around where we can focus on it alone. Okay, with all of that groundwork laid out to start off, let's return to the Mediterranean. A story from the historian Herodotus is actually where we start today. He's going to play a large role in today's episode, actually. And this story takes place on the Mediterranean, so why don't we try to visualize cruising on that sea as we discuss the events of its past. This story also incorporates the first location that will be our focus today, and, well, indirectly at least, the story includes the second location too. While the veracity of this story is somewhat suspect, I mean, we are talking about a story from Herodotus, it's still instructive, and it was probably based in some measure of real fact. Okay, in the histories, then, we have this story about a ship captain named Coleus. Coleus captained a ship from Samos, a city in Ionia, and as the story goes, he was attempting to sail to Egypt. Ionia is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey, so Egypt is pretty close to due south from where Samos and Ionia as a whole are. 
A storm drove his ship off course somehow, landing him in Cyrene, which is on the Libyan coast and pretty far west of Egypt. Some fellow sailors there in Cyrene, we could call them good Samaritans if you want to, even though they weren't from Samaria, and, well, that story hadn't even been spoken or written down yet. Anyhow, these fine fellows left Coleus, quote, a year's supply of provisions. Then, to pick up in the translation from Herodotus, he writes, quote, Then they set sail from Cyrene, intending to go to Egypt, but were again driven off course by an easterly wind, which did not abate until they had passed through the pillars of Heracles, and by some divine guidance came to Tartessos. This trading post had not yet been exploited at this time, and so these men returned with a greater profit from their cargo than any other Hellenes of whom we have an accurate account, except for that of Sostratos of Aegina, since it is impossible for anyone to challenge his record. Apart from that last exception carved out by Herodotus about some guy who probably had his record broken eventually anyway, what exactly can we glean from this story? Well, first off, the dating of this little tale is nigh on impossible. He doesn't really give us any good context. What we are left with, then, is the fact that an Ionian city sent a ship out to Egypt. So, trade with Egypt had become a regular thing at some point in Greek's history. Greek trade with Egypt will be our first focus today, in just a moment, actually. The second point that we can maybe pull out from this story is that Herodotus thinks the Greek discovery of the wealth of the far western Mediterranean was, well, just a fluke, to put it bluntly. He doesn't say that the wealth of Tartessos was discovered, or that trade gradually led the Greeks to the pillars of Heracles. No, he says that a storm pushed a ship bound for Egypt all the way to the west end of the Middle Sea. Believe it or not, our second point today will touch on the Greek push further west. We will look at the colonists of one city who made it into modern-day Spain before any other Greeks, how they got there, why the Phoenicians tried to bar the door to Greek expansion further west, and how that attempt to bar Greek expansion panned out for everyone involved. To pack all of this into the episode today, we will have to follow one string from the 7th century BCE on into the 500s BCE for a little ways. Then we'll have to circle back, pick up a second string which also begins in the 7th century, and move back forward up to about the same time. So, the chronology won't unfold side by side, but we will try to connect the dots where we can and keep it coherent. I'll try anyways. If I do fail, let me know, please, and maybe I can rectify matters in the next episode, or maybe we can get some conversation going on the Facebook page or somewhere if you need any clarification. Our first string today starts in Greece and points south. To the land of the pharaohs. The place within Egypt to which we now turn our attention was known as Naucratis, 
a name that is probably the most blatant adoption of maritime terminology that we've seen so far anywhere. Now, Kratis in the Greek means sea power or sea victory, a name with nary a whiff of humility to be found. That's all right, though, I think, actually, because the Greeks that peopled now Kratis and controlled the eastern Mediterranean into the 7th and 6th centuries could legitimately brag of their power on the seas. To get the ball rolling on the history of Naucratis and the role it played in Greek and Egyptian history, I should insert the obligatory nod to the fact that various scholars disagree about the earliest date of Greek presence in this area. The site of Naucratis is located on the Canopic branch of the Nile, which is the westernmost branch of the branches in the Nile Delta region. Concerning the date of Greek presence in the area, I think a summation is probably most helpful. The details are interesting, and I spent more time than I really should admit in trying to sort them out, but to flesh them out in a fully useful manner would get us way too far off topic. The bottom line is the same one that's undergirded a lot of our talks so far on the podcast. A literal reading of only Herodotus or of some of the other ancient historians in isolation would lead us to conclude that the Greeks arrived in Naucratis at a later date than archaeology appears to indicate. The cause of their arrival also differs between the various treatments from antiquity, and I think that thread would yield a bit more fruit for us. Admittedly, this discussion by its very nature does include the issue of dating, but I'm not going to focus on that alone. Another passage from Herodotus can help us understand the story according to him and to those who use his work as the basis for the view that the Greeks didn't arrive in Naucratis until a later time frame. This view places their arrival somewhere after 570 BCE, which is during the reign of the pharaoh Amasis II. He was a ruler in the 26th dynasty in Egypt, if you're interested. Anyway, Herodotus wrote this, quote, Amasis became fond of Hellenes in general, and he displayed a special warmth for those who came to Egypt by giving them the city of Naucratis in which to live. For those Hellenes who came by sea to visit but not to settle there, he granted land on which they could erect altars and build precincts for their gods. Now the greatest, most famous, and most popular of these precincts is called the Hellenion, which was founded jointly by the Ionian cities of Chios, Chaos, Phocaea, and Clazomenae, the Dorian cities of Rhodes, Canidus, Halicarnassus, and Phasilus, and one Aeolian city, Mytilene. This precinct belongs to these cities, which also provide the magistrates who superintend the trading post. All other cities that claim these privileges, in fact, have no share in them at all. In addition, a precinct of Zeus was founded separately by some Aeginetans, as was a precinct of Hera by some Samians, and a precinct of Apollo by some Milesians. 
A long time ago, Naukratis was the one and only trading post in Egypt, and if anyone arrived at another mouth of the Nile, he had to swear he had come there unwittingly, or by accident, and to take an oath that he would direct his ship to the Canopic Mouth. If the winds prevented him from sailing there, he then had to transport his cargo by barge all around the delta until he reached Naukratis which shows just how highly that city was regarded. For the time being here, I will just let these two paragraphs from Herodotus speak for themselves. Emesis ruled from 570 BCE to 526, so the account of Herodotus would place the gifting of Naucratis at some point during that reign. This is the later view of when the Greeks arrived there. The competing view, and the one that gives us more firm footing underneath the claim of an earlier date, comes from Strabo. But there's actually a middle ground interpretation that incorporates both passages in a pretty logical way. In the geography, Strabo talks of occurrences during the reign of the pharaoh Sametikos, or Samtek I a pharaoh who ruled a bit earlier than Amasis, back in 664 to 610 BCE. Strabo wrote this, which contrasts with the previous passage from Herodotus. Quote, in the time of Sametikos, who lived in the time of Cyaxerxes the Mede, the Milesians with 30 ships put in at the Balbatine mouth, and then disembarking, fortified with a wall the above-mentioned settlement. But in time, they sailed up into the Saedic Nome, defeated the city Aineros in a naval fight, and founded Naucratis. I think that these two passages are good examples of the two potential views concerning the founding of Naucratis as a Greek occupation in Egypt. To this point in time, the archaeological work has borne out the most widely accepted view that the Greeks first arrived in the region at an earlier date, probably during the reign of Sametikus, quite possibly in the context of a mercenary service for the pharaoh. The passage from Strabo bears out this view, obviously. Sametikos then seems to have been responsible for the first establishment of Naucratis as a center for his contingent of Greek mercenaries. There, the Milesians in particular established a fort that bore their name, but since the Nile was the main maritime theater of Egypt, they appear to have participated in naval battles at the behest of the Egyptian pharaoh, taking his side against a pretender to the throne. While the archaeology shows a Greek presence in Naucratis during the 7th century BCE, consistent with this earlier dating time frame, it does appear that Herodotus was also telling some truth, and that the later pharaoh Amasis also played a pronounced role in the history of Naucratis. It was he that helped turn the city into a major grain port and settlement for his Greek mercenaries, men which came from numerous cities around the Greek world. That first passage that we read from Herodotus told how nine cities from the eastern Greek regions all cooperated in the financing and upkeep of a shrine called Hellenion. 
The Greek city-states cooperated at Naucratis, and the same can be said of the Egyptians and even other foreign traders, the Phoenicians included. Naucratis was a major trade center in its time. It was oftentimes labeled an emporion, which is the Greek term for a trade center located in the territory of a foreign power. The city was cosmopolitan then, and although Egypt didn't necessarily treat it as a full-fledged Egyptian city, which is because they probably didn't want to give the Greeks too great of a foothold in Egypt, they were still quite happy to trade the grain of Egypt for the silver that Greece had begun to funnel out of the Black Sea, as well as the silver coming from the Phoenician western trade routes. The Greeks, though, also respected the Egyptian culture and achievement. Solon himself is said to have traveled to Naucratis during his lifetime. And perhaps the most recognizable export from Naucratis back to Greece is the form and style of Egyptian sculpture and architecture, both of which heavily influenced the development of Greek art and architecture as they evolved into the classical period for which they are most remembered. The final and the most notorious influence that Naucratis had upon Greece also comes from a story in Herodotus that relates to the ancient practice of prostitution, which I don't think has come up on the podcast yet, but we'll have to see how much it does in the future given that we are talking about sailors. Anyway, Herodotus says that the prostitutes of Naucratis were peculiarly alluring to the point that the brother of the lyric poet Sappho traveled to the Emporion on the Nile and purchased the freedom of a beautiful Thracian courtesan named Rhodopis. Herodotus described her, quote, as well endowed with the blessings of Aphrodite, such that after she was freed, she opened a successful brothel, amassed a small fortune, and commissioned craftsmen to create a votive offering to be placed in the temple at Delphi, and which Herodotus claimed to have seen with his own eyes. I guess we will take Herodotus at his word on this point only, but it's probably a safe assumption that even if he was lying about the votive he saw at Delphi, Naucratis was probably still well known for its alluring courtesans, as much as it was known for its wealth of trade and diversity, plugging Greece back into the cultural life of Egypt. Later on in his work, Herodotus mentions the successor of Sametikos in Egypt, the pharaoh Necho II. Now, I didn't go back in my notes to see which specific episode in our series on Egypt contained an allusion to Necho, but I'm fairly sure that he stuck his head into one of those episodes back near the beginning of the podcast. If he did indeed appear previously for us, it would have been in the context of his attempt to build a canal connecting the Nile River with the Red Sea. Necho ruled for over a decade and a half, beginning in 610 BCE, and according to Herodotus, the canal project was a bit more than Egypt could handle at that point. By the time that the pharaoh pulled the plug on the project, over 120,000 laborers had supposedly died at which point an oracle conveniently told the pharaoh that the project would only have been a benefit to the enemies of Egypt, 
which, of course, gave him a much-needed escape button from the project. The Canal Project is interesting, but two other maritime ventures undertaken by Neko II are also mentioned by Herodotus. He wrote that, quote, Neko turned his attention to war. He had triremes built, some on the Mediterranean coast, others on the Arabian Gulf, where the docks are still to be seen, and made use of his new fleets as occasion arose. Historian Lincoln Payne has this to say by way of explanation. Neko probably sought to defend Red Sea shipping against attacks by pirates. Whether the vessels were built and manned by Greeks, Phoenicians, or Egyptians is unknown, but Greek crews and shipwrights were doubtless available at Naucratis. There was ample precedent for Tyrian collaboration in Red Sea ventures, and the antipathy of Phoenician merchants to their Assyrian and Babylonian neighbors may have convinced many to seek their fortunes in Egypt, as their ancestors had. The third and final maritime venture that Neko supposedly oversaw was a circumnavigation of the African continent. The story, along with similar stories attributed to other sailors of the time, are enough to merit an episode of their own, I think so I will leave those to the future. If you're impatient to hear about them, or if you want to hear probably a fuller and better treatment of them than I think that I am capable of mustering, head over to Guillaume Lamotte's History of Exploration podcast and look for the first two episodes that he ever put out. They deftly cover Neko II and the other exploration story that I had in mind. I do have one final side note to wedge in here as my final point related to Greek relations with Egypt during the 7th century BCE and onwards. Now, Kratis itself was located 45 miles, or about 72 kilometers away from the mouth of the Nile River. So, although Greek merchants could easily sail up the Nile for that distance to the city, they had a ways to go from the open sea of the Mediterranean. Within the last 20 years or so of our present day, a new and fascinating discovery was made further north along the Nile, where archaeologists found the site of a sister port to Naucratis. The site is called Thonis Heraklion, since ancient texts made mention of a city bearing these two names. From these ancient allusions to the city, historians knew that there must have been another port somewhere between the Mediterranean and Naucratis, but as I said, the actual site was only very recently discovered. If you follow any history or archaeology news sites, you probably saw images from the underwater archaeology work being done there. I used one of these images in the artwork for today's episode, actually and I'll link to some of the sites that talk about the discoveries there in the show notes for the episode today. Work at the site is ongoing, of course, and although I don't have a whole lot to say about it substantively, the main function of the sister port to Naucratis was to be a control valve for access to the Nile from the Mediterranean. To get south to Naucratis, you had to first pass through Thonis. 
I have to confess personally that when I think of gatekeepers or toll operators as such, which is kind of what Thanis Heraklion functioned as, I always wind up thinking of the Keeper of the Bridge of Death from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the what-is-your-name guy, and so on, you know. Anyhow, I doubt that there was such a keeper in Thanis Heraklion, and we know from a stela erected by a 4th century BCE pharaoh that they merely levied a tax on all imports passing through Thanis and route to Naukrates. The same stela says that all transactions at Naukrates were also taxed, so any Greek imports passing along this route would have been subject to double taxation, at least in the 4th century. These sister ports of call for Greek trade into Egypt proper are important, and I'm sure that more could be said about them, but for today I think it's time to leave Egypt behind, bid adieu to Naukratis, the emporion of sea power, and circle back in time and space to the story that opened our episode today. That story involved the Greeks who supposedly first discovered the wealth of the Western Mediterranean a discover that was supposedly accidental, since their intended destination was Egypt originally. We've now talked a bit about where they were trying to go, and some of the reasons that they probably were aimed south. Now, let's get into a look at where these sailors ended up, what they discovered there, and then talk about the Greek city-state that capitalized on this knowledge. The story holds that the ship captained by Calais, after it was diverted from Egypt twice by a storm, ended up in Tartessos, the region of southern Iberia that lay outside the Pillars of Heracles, further west even than Malaga and Cadiz, the strongholds of the Phoenicians in the west. There, in Tartessos, Calais traded with the locals for a fortune in the silver that flowed from the mountains of the area. We've already said quite a bit about the wealth that was contained in this region by way of our episodes that covered the Phoenicians and the trade network that they established in order to connect Tyre with the Far West. The riches of the Iberian Peninsula don't need to be rehashed, I don't think, then. But where the Phoenicians had set up shop, Back as early as the 9th century BCE, the Greeks didn't begin to sniff around the far western Med until at least two centuries later. Who then were the first Greeks to push this far west? The answer is a bit of a surprise if you were to guess based upon the major cities or stories that we've discussed so far on the podcast. It might be logical to assume that the stronger cities of mainland Greece held an advantage, since they were closer to the central and western Mediterranean than were the Ionian Greek cities who opened the routes into the Black Sea. It might even make sense to assume that the sailors from the Ionian island of Samos were the first to really establish a link to Tartessos, since Coleus and the first ship to accidentally wind up there were originally from Samos and presumably returned there as well. I've assuredly let the cat out of the bag here with the way I framed this conjecture, but the first Greek city to really turn its attention to the far west of the Mediterranean was none of the above. 
It was a city about which we haven't yet said much of substance at all. The city was called Phokeia, and I think we ought to now go ahead and see what we can learn about it. Phokeia ranked among the cities of Ionia, a few of which we've already met. It was located on the west coast of Anatolia, and it was also the northernmost of the Greek cities in this area, so by all logical supposition, we would naturally guess that it took part in the Greek push into the Black Sea. Our guess there would be correct, actually. Phokeia was involved in the partnership with Miletus in founding at least two colonies to the north. Lampascus was on the northern end of the Hellespont, while a colony called Amysos was settled on the south-central shore of the Black Sea, in the north of modern-day Turkey. The Phocaeans also had a part to play down south in Naucratis as well. Their city was among those listed in the administrators of the temple called Hellenian there, for instance. Neither north nor south were the main outlets for Phocaean energy, though, and since Ionia and the city of Phocaea were at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, that leaves us only one remaining cardinal point of the compass, west. Phocaea herself was similar to many of the other Greek cities we visited in that she was located on a promontory, which gave her great access to the sea through natural harbors. Of course, this also resulted in some pretty meager farming soil, so the citizens of Phocaea turned to the waters of the Mediterranean. We can pluck the best summary introduction to their renown from who else but Herodotus. He writes, quote, Now the Phocaeans were the first of the Hellenes to make long sea voyages. They are the ones who opened up the Adriatic, Tyrrhenian, Iberia, and Tartessos to the Hellenes. They did not sail in round-sided ships, but in pentaconters. The round-sided ships referred to here were presumably the typical Greek merchant vessel, the ships with deeper, more rounded hulls, engineered for carrying capacity above all else. The pentaconter is something that doesn't need much explanation. We've covered it pretty well now, I hope, and the pentaconter that existed in this period of Greek history was pretty similar in many ways to the one that existed back in the Mycenaean time. In contrast to the round-hulled merchant ship, the Pentaconter was the ship of war, built for speed, with its oar-aided propulsion built in a way that sacrificed capacity for speed, power, and durability. Now, a few writers I've come across make an assumption about why the Phocaeans decided to venture west in warships rather than merchant ships, and although it is indeed an assumption without concrete corroboration in ancient sources, I think this following reason is as good an explanation as we are likely to get. The far western Mediterranean was the playground of the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians in particular, it had been ever since Tyre first stretched her hand out to the pillars of Heracles. We've talked a bit about how the increasing Greek presence around the boot of Italy and on the islands of Sicily and Sardinia 
really influenced the development of the area and the Phoenician approach to their presence in the Western Mediterranean as well. While the Greek and Phoenician relationship didn't necessarily begin on bad terms, it gradually slipped in a direction that saw the Phoenicians attempt to shut off Greek access to the west of the Great Sea. As this was indeed the case during the 7th century BCE, when the Phocaeans began to sniff around the forbidden waters, it would make total sense for them to do that in fast armored ships rather than in slower merchant vessels. The faster vessels may have indeed helped the Phocaeans elude the Phoenician patrols at first, maybe even scare them off a little bit given the Pentaconter's armor and power, but the curious Greek sailors did use other skills to help them create a stronger foothold in the western Mediterranean. One of those skills that came in handy was the ability to make friends, a skill that's universally useful, I would venture to say, and one that I'm always working to improve, for that matter. Let's pick back up here with Herodotus to see how the Phocaeans followed up on the sailors from Samos who first accidentally wound up in Tartessos. He wrote, quote, when they went to Tartessos, they made friends with the king of the Tartesians, whose name was Arganthonios. He ruled as tyrant of Tartessos for 80 years, and lived for all of 120 years. The Phocaeans became such good friends with this man that he urged them to leave Ionia behind and settle wherever they wished in his country. Then, when he could not persuade them to do that, and learning that the growing power of the Mede was beginning to threaten them, he gave them a very generous amount of money to build a wall around their city. Now, in terms of a rough time frame, Herodotus puts Argonthanios as ruling in Tartessos beginning in 625, so at some point thereafter is when the Phocaeans would have shown up in town there. The actual time may have been a few decades before 625 BCE, but in any event, we know only the rough time frame when the Phocaeans began to be active in the Far West. The other indicator in this passage is the reference to Phocaea building a wall around their home city in order to defend themselves from the Mede, which could be a reference to Cyrus the Great, the founder of the powerful Achaemenid Empire, but it could also generally refer to those who ruled in Persia before Cyrus rose to power, which gives us a window of time in which to place this story. The actual point, though, is that the Phocaeans managed to get on the good side of at least one ruler in the Iberian Peninsula. This is really interesting to me, because we've seen in other areas that Greek settlers from other city-states weren't quite so friendly with the natives. It's also interesting when we get to the conclusion of our story today, an event that was instigated in large part by actions taken by Phocaea, actions that depart drastically from this nice guy approach to Argonthanios. To continue on with the story here today, though, we should briefly mention a few of the colonies founded by Phocaea. One of the earliest of these, founded around 600 BCE, was also one of the most important that Phocaea founded in the Far West. 
the colony was called Massalia, and in modern-day parlance we know it as Marseille, France. Roughly, we call the region of France at this time Gaul, and within Gaul, Massalia was founded on the coast where the Rhone River Delta runs into the Mediterranean. Again, then, we have the classic geographical spot for a Greek colony, at the confluence of a major river and the Great Sea. I don't have a whole lot to say about Massalia yet, other than to say that after it had grown for a bit, the colonists from this settlement, along with the colonists from its metropolis, founded a third colony which they called Emporii. This name is about as literal as an ancient Greek could get in founding a colony to serve as a market port. But before we move on too quickly, there's a few points connected to Massalia and Emporii. For starters, these colonies were situated at either end of the Gulf of Léon, a semicircular gulf that extended into southern Gaul from the Mediterranean. Massalia is often called the oldest city in modern-day France, and although the Greeks from Phocaea did indeed found it around 600 BCE, they weren't the first to occupy the area, neither were they the first to sail in the Gulf of Léon. The Carthaginians, for starters, were there much earlier, trading with the locals who at that time were the Gauls and the Ligurians. When the Phocaeans appeared on the scene, rearing to found a city in the area, the Carthaginians were obviously unhappy, and, well, the Greeks didn't get along quite as well as they had with the king of Tartessos. In his Peloponnesian War, Thucydides explains the background leading up to the war, and he says that at about the time Cyrus took power in Persia, quote, also the Phocaeans, while they were founding Massalia, defeated the Carthaginians in a sea fight. We don't get detail regarding this sea battle from any other sources, at least not to confirm which particular battle it was, but it is possible that the battle referred to there by Thucydides is one and the same with a battle that we will now turn our attention to. Let's go ahead and lay out the backstory a little bit, like Thucydides did, to help understand the forces at play, but I must say that as brutish as this might sound, I am a little glad that we're finally getting into the era of naval battles and the like. They will at least add a different spice to our normal discussions of more pedestrian topics. So to lay a basic groundwork picture for the discussion here, we need to first recall that during the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, the Assyrians had increasingly put pressure on the original Levantine Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. The wealth flowing from their western colonies was the aim, of course, and for quite a while this wealth kept the Assyrians somewhat at bay. When Assyria got too greedy and controlled the main Phoenician cities too tightly, the colonies of Tyre actually saw benefit from the decline of their mother city. Assyria was much too far away to exercise control over Carthage in northern Africa, and as the once-important silver trade that connected Tyre to Spain had dried up 
thanks to the meddling of Assyria, in Tyre's trade network, Carthage was left free to fill the vacuum in the central and western Mediterranean. As we've seen by now, Carthage filled that void handily, and a large part of that was because of the north-south trade axis that connected Carthage with Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and the Tyrrhenian Sea, even further west to Massalia and the Gulf of Lyon, was centrally located for Carthage to take advantage of. Carthaginian power extended west to the Straits of Gibraltar and beyond as well, of course, but this central area became the ground where Carthaginian power clashed with the Greek desire for ground on which to expand. Episode 27 is where we really examined the early stages of Greek colonization on Sicily. The Greeks there managed to colonize and control most of the island's eastern portion, while Carthage retained the western part and the water routes that ran back to Carthage herself and further west. While the tensions on Sicily in particular began to heighten due to these developments, that tension extended to the surrounding areas, to a degree at least. In terms of time frame, the Greeks had arrived in Sicily around 750 BCE, and over the following century plus. And although the Greek colonies on Sicily and some on mainland Italy didn't push the Carthaginians into open hostility quite yet, this wave of Greek settlement in the 8th and 7th centuries was only the first wave. With the founding of Massalia in 600 BCE and other colonies in the area over the following 50 years, the Phocaeans kicked off a second wave of colonization in the central Mediterranean that tried Carthaginian patience a bit more strongly. We're almost to the battle now, but before we get there, we have one more participant to bring out from behind the curtain. Given the region that we're now focused on, it should make sense that the remaining major player in pre-Roman times was none other than the Etruscan people. They've been mentioned here and there so far, but I've chosen not to focus on them in any major sense yet. They were sailors, certainly in a local context, but for the most part, historical study has tended to focus on them in their relation to the beginnings of Rome, and then of course the whole question of where the Etruscans themselves came from originally. Before we get into the battle scene for today, we can at least say that the Etruscans were involved in sea trade in the Tyrrhenian Sea, possibly even beyond, and that the archaeology in the Etruscan sites of Italy has shown a close connection between their culture and those of both the Greeks and the Phoenicians. In many instances, this appears to support the view that the Etruscans were just as welcoming to Greek and Phoenician traders as the other natives of the region that we've seen so far that there was cooperation and understanding, that trade could make all of the participants better off. That being said, the Greeks knew a subset of the Etruscans as Tyr Senoi, a name for a one-time Etruscan ruler, but one that came to symbolize Etruscans that resorted to piracy. One of the Homeric hymns, the one dedicated to Dionysus, 
tells how the god was standing by the sea, giving his best hair care commercial type look, you know, shining hair waving in the ocean breeze, when, quote, soon men from a well-trimmed ship, pirates, came quickly over the wine-dark sea, Tyrsenians. An evil fate brought them. They saw him, nodded to each other, jumped quickly, seized him, and took him to the ship, rejoicing in their hearts. Dionysus survived just fine, don't you worry about him. The Etruscans as a whole, though, as we've said, were invested in the local trade networks of the Tyrrhenian Sea, and they may have even engaged in naval battles with the Greeks earlier than the one that we're talking about today. There's a depiction of a naval engagement on a lovely vase found in the Etruscan city of Caere, one of the pre-Roman Etruria's largest and most important cities. It's come to be called the Aristonothos vase for an inscription on it that appears to name the artist as someone named Aristonothos. Despite the beautiful ship depiction that covers one side of the vase, with a depiction of Odysseus fighting the Cyclops on the reverse, the name of the artist has actually become the subject of focus for academics. If this name is even the artist's name, it is a strange one. It appears nowhere else in Greek artifacts or literature. The name, though, isn't my concern, and I suppose that we could also read a lot into the symbolism of Odysseus as well, but let's talk ship depictions. It's been a little while. For starters, the vase has been generally dated to 675 BCE, so a fair while before the Phacaeans settled Massalia, but then there's not much to connect this vase to any particular Greek city. It was found in an Etruscan city, as I said, and it depicts two ships facing one another. It's quite clear from even a cursory glance that the two ships are of quite different styles. The ship on the left is assumed to be the Greek ship. It is quite similar in hull shape to the Pentaconter style ship that we've talked about in previous episodes. This Pentaconter depiction contains a few firsts in Greek ship depictions, though. This one contains the first clear depiction of a raised deck for fighters to stand on and to fight from. The main point of interest on the Greek ship is the ram on the front, or at least what appears to be a ram. The iconic eye also graces the prow of the Greek ship as it faces off against the foreign ship. As a whole, this pentaconter looks eerily similar to what most people recognize as the Greek-style trireme. It just doesn't have the tri-level of oar banks yet. This one only has one bank of oar rowers and the raised deck, which is a pretty new innovation for this time frame. The second ship is the one that is the non-Greek ship, obviously. And although this vase is why I said that the Etruscans may have engaged in naval battles before the 6th century, it's an assumption we're making to assume that the second ship is indeed Etruscan. 
Since the vase was found in a main Etruscan city, I can see the logic there, but I should say that it's not definitive. Anyhow, this second ship has the distinctive hull shape of a merchant vessel, the deeper hull with its heavy curvature. There's not too much else to be said about the second ship. It's a typical merchant vessel, although the depiction doesn't depict it under sail, while the Greek ship contains a bank of rowers. Some researchers have theorized that this foreign ship wasn't really specific in nature to a certain region or a certain battle or context. Rather, that the foreign-style ship was just the Greek universalization of any foreign ship that they would have encountered on the Mediterranean. This theory does have a little backing, I think, from a similar depiction on a fibula, or a brooch, found in Sparta and dated to before 700 BCE. This depiction is almost identical to the one from the Aristonathos vase, down to the orientation of the ships, their styling, the warriors on the decks, all of it is eerily similar. The difference in dating these two similar artifacts, and the fact that they were found in different locations, does leave open the idea that this type of ship depiction was widespread and used as a conventional artistic depiction of Greek ships facing off against foreign sailors as a group of outsiders or an other. Before we shift gears here, I did want to mention that there's a fabulous article that examines this vase in depth. It interprets the scenes and the symbolism of each side. It even gets into the way that Greek culture tied wine to their perception of the sea, which is a topic that I want to cover here soon, too. I will link to the article and the sources for this episode, and uh, if you're looking for it in particular, it's called The Aristonathos Crotter, Competing Stories of Conflict and Collaboration by Carol Daugherty. Alright, to briefly summarize now before we dive into the battle proper, the Etruscans were known for opportunistic piracy at times, despite their cooperation with foreign merchants on many, maybe even on a majority of occasions. This was really the status quo for most sailors and merchants in the ancient world, though. A general sense of cooperation with some subsets of the larger people groups opting to raid vessels or settlements as it struck their fancy. On to the battle that I've been teasing for probably 20 minutes now, and I do apologize if I drag things out a bit in the lead-up here. There's just so many interesting bits to fit into the puzzle. We framed the mood in the central Mediterranean as tense but civil for the most part after the first major wave of Greek colonization. The Phocaean wave of colonization began a bit before 600 BCE, but it really picked up at 600 with Massalia and the major colonies thereafter. Massalia in particular grew quickly, cutting into the Carthaginian trade routes between Iberia and the central Mediterranean. Carthage and the Etruscans both can't have been happy about this second wave of colonists who began staking their flags 
in even more places than had occurred during the first wave. I mean, who is ever happy when the new kid shows up on the block and starts trying to stake his claim? The claim that will now be our focus is a colony called Alalia, which the Phocaeans founded on the eastern side of the island of Corsica in 565 BCE. Corsica is a bit further north than Sicily and Sardinia both, so this is getting more into the territory of the Etruscans, the Phoenicians, and it's just central for this conflict to erupt into flames. About 20 years after the founding of Alalia, in 546 BCE, Cyrus of Persia sent an army to lay siege to the Ionian city of Phocaea, the home city of these colonies that we're now talking about. The inhabitants there chose to flee en masse, rather than try to withstand the Persian siege. And in his telling, although Herodotus elaborates on the way in which they effected their sneaky escape, the bottom line, as he tells it, is that they loaded their pentaconters and sailed west, leaving Cyrus's army with an empty city. Herodotus then gives a bit more backstory, but in the end, the Phocaean refugees all wound up in Alalia, the colony on the eastern side of Corsica, smack in the middle of the trade routes plied by both Etruscan and Carthaginian ships. For what is probably going to be the final time today, although don't quote me on that, we will now turn to Herodotus to pick up the story. Essentially, what we will see in this paragraph is that while the Greeks criticized Etruscan piracy, they also decided to venture into that line of work themselves, with all of its attendant consequences. Herodotus wrote, quote, After arriving on Corsica, they lived for five years with those who had come earlier, sharing their settlement and building sanctuaries. During that time, they raided and plundered all the neighboring settlements until they had so provoked the Tyrrhenians and Carthaginians that each of these powers agreed to furnish 60 ships to wage war against the Phocaeans. In response, the Phocaeans manned 60 ships of their own and went out to engage their enemies on what is called the Sardinian Sea. The Phocaeans won the battle, but for them it was a Cadmian victory, since 40 of their ships were destroyed and the 20 remaining were rendered useless because their beaks had been bent back. So they sailed back to Alalia, picked up their women and children, took on board as many of their other possessions as their ships could carry, and leaving Corsica behind, sailed to Rhegion. Before we wrap things up today for good, let's try and unpack the nuggets that we can glean from that paragraph, and then we'll see how this battle connects to the larger developments of the time period and developments that will help us get the framework as we move forward. For starters, although it isn't explicitly stated in that passage, the fact that the Etruscans and Carthaginians each provided 60 ships means that their fleet in total numbered 120 ships, leaving the Phocaeans outnumbered by a factor of 2 to 1. 
The specifics of the battle are not mentioned by Herodotus, nor are they described elsewhere, sadly. Thus, we know only the size of the fleets, the likelihood that they were both comprised of pentaconters with rams on the front, and the fact that somehow the outnumbered Phocaeans emerged victorious, or somewhat victorious. There's that interesting description of the victory that Herodotus tosses in there. He calls it a Cadmian victory. The most well-known type of victory from the ancient world is, of course, the Pyrrhic victory. And although these two are similar, the term Cadmian victory derives from a Greek myth about Cadmus, the mythical founder of Thebes. When he was attempting to get the city up and running, he needed a fresh supply of water for the city. And as is par for the course in Greek mythology, the only nearby water source was guarded by a dragon. Cadmus sent his companions to go slay it, and they failed miserably, every last one of them perishing in the attempt. This is the idea behind the term Cadmian victory, then. Cadmus killed the dragon himself, but once he had obtained access to the water, the initial failure of his companions resulted in the fact that Cadmus alone was left, and everyone who was supposed to have benefited from the water was dead. This is somewhat akin to the phrase that we won the battle, but we lost the war. To wrap it up in one sentence here, the Phocaeans won the Battle of the Sardinian Sea. Uh, it's also called the Battle of Alalia, But their fleet was so decimated that they had to abandon their habitation of the colony, which was the entire reason that they had even fought the battle at all. This battle went a long way toward Carthage retaining control of the central Mediterranean, but it especially helped them in their effort to keep the Greeks out of the far west in any organized sense. The final main conclusion that we can draw from the description of the battle is that the naval warfare tactic of ramming opposing ships may have still been in the refining stages, as the Phocaeans were left with many ships with damaged rams. This is actually the first textual reference to ships equipped with rams, for what it's worth, also. As far as the tactic of ramming itself, the Phocaeans must have had more finely developed ramming tactics, since they managed to defeat an enemy with the numbers advantage, but that's really about all we can deduce. The Battle of the Sardinian Sea, which was fought within a few years of 540 BCE, by the way, this battle resulted in the Phocaeans being pushed out of the Tyrrhenian Sea altogether. The Etruscans retained control of Corsica, while the Carthaginians stayed on Sardinia. Sicily was left as the sole focus of conflict between these three powers, and in the coming centuries many more battles would be waged for control of Sicily. There were naval battles in the Sicilian Wars, to be sure, and although we will mention them in due time, the bigger picture to come is connected back to the reasons why the Phocaeans resorted to piracy. Cyrus the Great, the first ruler of the Achaemenid Empire, had conquered Phocaea, if you recall. 
the Phocaeans were the only of the Ionian Greek peoples that chose to flee. Good call or bad, taking the Battle of the Sardinian Sea into consideration, all the other Ionian cities were conquered by Persia in the years following Phocaea's choice to flee. The Persian Empire had expanded to the shores of Ionia, with only the water remaining between it and Greece herself. The rest is probably somewhat familiar to you, but the naval particularities of the Greco-Persian War will be our focus in the coming episodes. Next time, though, we will focus in on the trireme as it developed in the 6th century BCE, leading up to Salamis and the other naval battles of the 5th century. The construction of the trireme, the tactics and formations that came to be used, will all be topics of focus for us next time, and I think it would be easier to try to talk about all of these at once so that we can get a good idea and a good understanding of the trireme and its use as we move into the age when these ships were the kings of the Mediterranean. Speaking of our future tack, as concerns member episodes, I'm polishing up the script on our next one, and I hope to have it out within the first week of April. In that episode, we'll take a look at the earliest Greek maps and how they give us a window into the Greek perception of the Mediterranean in the 6th century BCE. A bit of cartography, then. I am very interested in studying out the connection in the Hellenic world between wine and the sea, also. It has so many levels of relationship, and it makes for a fascinating topic. Really, I just haven't decided if I want to make that a member episode, or if it would fit well into our main narrative at all. But I will update everyone when I get a better sense of what I want to do there, and if any of our non-members are interested in hearing that one, uh, give me a shout and let me know, and I'll take that into consideration for sure. That is what the near future holds, uh, at least as far as it appears to me at present. To wrap up today, let me go ahead and thank each of you who have been kind enough to leave a five-star review, and as you probably expect to hear from me by now, if you haven't done so yet, a review would go a long way toward helping keep the podcast afloat on the iTunes charts. Since we last talked, five listeners have been kind enough to review the podcast, so a hearty thank you to iTunes users Nobby13, FrankBR, SPZCB10, Prodigious Miguel, and someone with the username Sailing Wannabe. I would be remiss if I didn't also welcome aboard our newest crew members, Greg, Susan, Robert, and Julie. For those of you who joined through Patreon, I will send you emails this week to get you set up with access to the crew member portion of the website, so look for those, please, if you would. That's really all I have for this time around. Moving forward, I will really strive to keep a good balance between interesting content and a good level of detail without getting too bogged down. This will surely get harder as we move into the time when more detail is available, so if there's anything specific that you do or do not want to hear about, let me know and I'll certainly keep it in mind. Thanks for staying tuned in today. I've really enjoyed the chat, and I hope that you have as well. Say, this just occurred to me too. Before next time, 
If you can't leave a review of the podcast, would you consider just telling a friend about it? Word of mouth has really helped us grow far beyond what I ever expected, and I'd love to be able to bring maritime history to more and more listeners every day. I do appreciate it, crew. Until next time around, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.